0: between what happened then, which I call the first test in the book, in the first chapter, and and, and now. And, and, and on that basis, we are able to make a projection about what will happen to the country if this problem is not resolved.
1: And it's a test that the, you say, the ANC failed. Yeah, the ANC failed. And it's a
0: test, and when I say the ANC failed, I don't mean that I'm imposing my own moral judgment. I'm saying the ANC failed based on its own um, moral framework that it set for itself when it wanted to replace the National Party. And I'm using Mandela's own commitment here when he was debating with FW Titlek in 1994 a few weeks before the elections. And then he was saying to Titlek, listen here, your government had been corrupt for many years. My job when we come in with my comrades is to replace your gravy train and take all the money that was uh, that's meant for the people and, and give it to the people and not put it to your And then he even said, listen, as part of that commitment, I am telling the public that I'm going (laughs) to reduce my salary when I take over. So you couldn't fault the ANC's morality at the time. So that's the framework against which um, one has to analyze or make a judgment. So it's not my own uh, self-imposed judgment. It's an ANC
1: judgment. But how... How might the AMC have dealt with what um, Bontu Alamisa said about Sera and Saul Kirzner realistically at the time? Uh, Because you say we can now analyze it with looking back at it with the benefit of hindsight, given the fact that they were a new government just coming to power, struggling with all sorts of things in order to try and establish a mode of governance, and an important part of their voter base in a very significant part of the, ANC, of the ANC's history, Trans Sky, this is coming up. What realistically could and should they have done at that time? Well, again, you have to refer
0: to what the ANC had committed itself to do. They said that they were going to get rid of the corruption of the National Party, right? But on top of that, there was a framework to do it there was the Constitution, which the ANC itself was part of negotiating and producing, together with the other parties that sat in the negotiation table. And part of that Constitution was a moral and a legal framework um, for a clean, accountable, responsive, um, a value-based political system um, with checks and balances, you know, professional civil service and all of those things. And then On top of that, you had um, new legislation that was supposed to assist the country through the transition. Part of that legislation was the TRC Act, which ensured that um, there was truth and reconciliation as part of the political transition. And this allegation against the Lasset-Gao came in that context of a political system or arrangement the ANC agreed to. And Ole Misa makes that uh, claim in that institution called the TRC. So the ANC gets angry that he's exposing one of their cabinet ministers and is bringing the party to disrepute. And then they decide that he must go. And Stella Skawa, against whom the allegations are made, must stay. And then she stays in the cabinet of Mandela, and she stays in the cabinet of uh, uh, Thabombeki, And then when she dies, Thabombeki believes uh, she was a noble person. And the main issue there really is also not to pass particular judgment on Stella Sikau. The issue is how the ANC handled the matter when it was faced with the decision on whether, given these two uh, comrades, the one who's uh, blowing the whistle, if we use the modern language, and the one accused of corruption. The ANC decided to side with the one accused of corruption. What also makes it very interesting when you look back now, because we have the advantage of looking back, is that at the time, the allegations of corruption that were made had nothing to do with the government of the ANC. The, the allegations had not happened after '94. These are allegations that uh, had to do with the government of the Transkei homeland. And Stella Strau was accused of having taken bribes to give Sol Kesna, the hotel magnate, some uh, exclusive uh, uh, gambling rights in the Transkei. So how the ANC decided to own up that type of corruption that didn't happen under it, and at the same time also taking a side with somebody who was accused of corruption, remains, as I say in the book, a mystery. But there's a little bit of a, a way I try to analyze and untangle the, 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 the mystery, and it has to do with how the ANC fundraised. And it turns out that now was the donor of the ANC. But you only have to make that interpretation and link with what's happening now if you, like,
1: analyze the detail and you can actually make your own judgment. Yeah, the, 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 the book is organized into 12 chapters, each of which deals with a different theme and deals with it incredibly meaningfully and powerfully. And it, the, the first chapter, which we've been talking about now, finishes the seeds of the tragedy were transmitted from the old order via a toxic mix of old money, businessmen eager to win favors from politicians, and political leaders ready to tackle anyone who dared make corruption claims against the party. So as the new constitutional order was being born, corruption was given a new impetus under a new dispensation. And the second chapter is called um, The Louder the Call, and it <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating the way you've gone back and counted the number of mentions of corruption and the need to fight corruption in the January 8 statements and the SONA addresses, and it turns out, surprise, surprise, Jacob Zuma has been the most vocal in SONA's and in January 8 statements about the need to fight corruption.
0: Yeah, that was a very interesting exercise, because, you know, um, I had been thinking, how do you best demonstrate that there's some cognitive dissonance here, in other words, What the ANC says and what it does, uh, don't sink, don't come together. So I had to develop a method to show that actually between Mandela, from Mandela to uh, President Sila Ramaphosa now, who is the leader most concerned about corruption? And how do you get that? Um, You get that by what people say, what people articulate in public. And in South Africa, there are only two important speeches in our political calendar, for as long as the ANC is in power. That is the General Eight statement of the ANC, where they set out the party priorities, and they make an assessment of how the party has been doing for the previous year, and they make a projection of what should happen next. In fact, that statement becomes like an instruction to government, what government should do next. So if you want to understand the Sona, you must first understand the General Eight statement, for as long as the ANC is in power. That, that's, that was, that's what happens. So I took these two speeches and analysed them, and I had to get all of them together, from Mandela to Cyril Ramaphosa, and then say, okay, which speech has got most mentions of corruption? Between so I do take Mandela's all state of the nation addresses and all general eight statements since '94. Then I say, okay, these are so many. This is the speech that has got most mentions. I do the same exercise with all of them. Then I tally them together, and I come. Uh, to the conclusion that, um, from general perspective, Zuma is the most concerned about corruption than all presidents South Africa has had.
1: And then he can, actually, I, just, can I just give the figures. Yeah. Um, the percentage of mentions attributed to Nelson Mandela, 2.77 percent, to Thabo Mbeki, 25 percent, to Jacob Zuma, 41.66 percent, and to Cyril Ramaphosa, a poor second at 30.55 percent. Yes, so Zuma is mostly concerned about corruption. <laughs> and in Sona, Nelson Mandela gets, uh, Med- Mandela and Mbeki gets 17 and 1 half percent. Chalemo botlante, poor man, only 15%. Uh, and and here, Sora Maposa does mention corruption in the state of the nation more than does Jacob Zuma, but there's not much of a difference. Yes, uh,
0: overall, Zuma is still, when you combine all of them, Zuma still leads in terms of his concern about corruption.
1: Very much concerned. <laughs> So, how, look, there's, there's an obvious, there's a very sort of facile and trite way of explaining that, to say that he, he's a hypocrite, he's, he's saying what people want to hear while doing what he wants to do. But is there, a, is there another deeper way of analysing that gap between intent and action? Yes, there is a chapter which uh, is it,
0: called The Authority to Steal. So basically, that chapter analyzes Zuma's authority. So by authority, we mean the power to give instructions and the power to uh, give directions and the power to withdraw directives and that type of stuff. So basically, how a leader instructs people subordinate to him. And in that way, a leader sets a tone to society. So from a rhetorical point of view, you can argue that given Zuma's concern about corruption in terms of percentages, he was mostly concerned about corruption, and he would have obviously led people to deal with corruption. And um, but there's another way in which a leader gives authority or gives directions to society, and that, in that way, is it's not a direct way; it's it's implicit. So that's what I call ostensible authority. So that, that's the authority that's given through the pattern of behavior of the leader. So that's how people get their instructions. So how you behave versus what you say. So you make people choose: are they going to believe what you say or are they going to believe how you act? So that type of authority, um, I find, is the kind of authority that's the latter category. Is the one that actually gave people the right to the authority to steal because he actually gave them the permission to steal, the permission to be corrupt by the way he behaved, not by the way he spoke.
1: We perhaps we'll get back to that, but. Um, Another chapter has a look at Thabo Mbeki, and and you seem convinced of his commitment to tackling corruption, that he had a genuine intent to do so. But there were other aspects that caused him to undermine that anti-corruption crusade of his. Just talk through some of those.
0: Yes, that's the
1: the anti-corruption gospel according
0: to (laughs) Mbeki. so basically i find him fascinating not necessarily convinced but fascinating in the way he focused on corruption because he's the only leader thus far in the anc um even historically before 94 even like to date who actually had tried to philosophize analyze corruption lecture about it try
1: to give different perspectives of the origins and and, and consequence of corruption. So he, moral mayhem perpetrated by deviance is the phrase. It's one difficult. of the things
0: he says. Yeah. So, so he employs biblical analysis, historical analysis, ideological, the capitalist system, and he tries to, he's, he's actually got an arsenal of analytical tools to analyze corruption. But he didn't actually stop there. Yeah. During his time, and that's why I give him credit, during his time, It was the period when the most comprehensive anti-corruption legislation was passed. The Scorpion was set up. um, He also signed a lot of international treaties um, uh, against corruption. But a few things tripped him. And his anti-corruption stance sort of fell apart. Didn't work out well. And that's what I also tried to analyze. And part of it has to do with, again, not being consistent enough when corruption affected people closer to him. And also, he also got problems with the racism issue. He has a very strong agenda against racism, to the point that when the media at some point reported on corruption, he would say, yeah, but you're just being corrupt. I mean, So you are just being uh, uh, racist. Uh, This corruption, you're making it as an allegation against black people. You are like the fishers of corrupt men, fishing in the sea of government. You find corrupt fishes all the time. So he had that kind of uh, anti racism streak which applied incorrectly when it came to corruption. And it's my view that corruption, regardless of race, is corruption. Mm. And that's that's where he sort of floundered. And the people that were corrupt could hide nicely under that cover that, oh, the people accusing us of corruption are actually racist. We can steal a little bit because they are racist.
1: Yeah, and, and and of course the yeah. the whole um, uh Jackie salebisi Picole you know Frenny Giwala holds a news holds a commission of inquiry and says Vusi Picole is perfectly fit to to hold office, but is it for reasons of comrade history that Tom Mbeki doesn't want to get rid of Jackie toslebi does he not believe that Jackie Sulebi is corrupt so that that's another critical area in the development of the, the giant of corruption that strides our country now. True, because that's the time when,
0: that's one of the cases when Mbegi failed to be consistent, excuse me, with this fight against corruption. Because um, as Musipi points out, um, J.K. Silebi and Mbegi were very close uh, back in the day in exile. So now Mbegi is confronted with the situation where his own comrades has been accused of corruption. And also makes mistakes of uh, regularly briefing him big about details about his investigation, which was, in my opinion, unwarranted. Because then you're actually inviting this political leader to make a political judgment on what actually is a criminal investigation. And you are inviting him to uh, basically make an opinion as president. Well, he should know that this police commissioner is corrupt. And I assume that. He might have uh, been disclosing this thing to beg as a way to say, "Listen, get rid of this guy. Uh, he's bad news for you, because you are pursuing the agenda of anti-corruption, but he's actually corrupt." So I'm thinking that maybe he had that in mind, but the, the unintended consequence of that is that he himself, specifically had to be gotten rid of, and that actually began the weakening of the NPA, which led us to where we are now in terms of state capture.
1: I'm not going to go all the way through the book because that would um, perhaps uh, prevent one or two or three of you from from buying it. But I I would like you to talk about a little bit, and and I think with an audience like this, uh, Patricia, good evening, uh, might have something to say. So I think there might be quite a few questions and I want to leave time for that. But do talk to us about your your chapter on political insurance.
0: Yeah, well that's an interesting one. Uh, One of the things about this book, uh, I must say, some people say, yeah, but some of the things you are talking about, we may well know about them. But what I do in this book, really, which is the, the benefit of having a book like this, is that once you read it, it's my belief that uh, if there are incidents of corruption that you read about in the future, or even as you live here, new allegations of corruption, after reading this book, you will be able to understand them, even if they're not mentioned here. So the book gives you some kind of a, a framework within which you can analyze new developments, new things and all of that. So as I was wrapping up the book, I was confronted with this uh, issue of Arthur Fraser. And then I wanted to, I felt like, you see, this is actually what I was talking about in the book chapter on political insurance. Actually, it's further evidence of how it works. So how it works is that if I know of instances of corruption implicating you. So I don't report to the police. I just keep them. That's how the ANC leaders do it. The day you have allegations against me, then I unleash what I have. So that it serves as a mutual deterrence that you shouldn't talk about my corruption. That's how the political insurance, at least one aspect of it, is done. The second one is where people literally buy the insurance. So these are business people who know that they want to do corruption in government or whatever, they want tenders, and then they basically, they can pay a leader, they can pay a faction of the ANC, they can pay a structure, or they can literally pay the whole ANC, or do a deal in partnership with a front company that fundraises money for the ANC. So in the event that a corruption scandal emerges, it's almost impossible while the ANC is in power to investigate anyone who is associated uh, um, with the ANC, so it serves as a political insurance against being investigated. So, in that way, the ANC is not able to deal with corruption.
1: Is is there a particular point in the in the last uh, six and 22, 28 years where there was you, you've talked you and you talked and you've write, you've written about how the seeds were sown right from the very beginning. But was there a point at which the ANC should have recognized in its internal discussions that we've been close to reaching a point of no return and where the culture of corruption wasn't entrenched enough yet to be able to turn it around? Is there a big missed opportunity in the last 15-20 years? It's not one. There are many
0: opportunities the ANC missed. Um, in the beginning, it was evasive. I mean, I remember I was covering the, um, uh, the National General Council of the ANC in 2000. In, in Quebec, it happened to be my first big conference of the ANC to cover. And the talk at the time was like, we need a new kid, we need a new morality, a new who won't be corrupt, who will be selfless, uh, and all of that. And Ndegi gave a speech there uh, of calling for this new caterer who won't be corrupt, new morality. And the example that he gave of this problematic morality was that of Hansi Kronje, that he was saying the ANC must avoid being corrupted by corrupt society. And Hansi Kronje, who at the time Uh, had been caught uh, with the scandal of match-fixing, was according to Mbegi, the representative of this corrupt figure that the ANC must not become. At that time, there were already lots of ANC people that had been reported in the media to be corrupt. But I think there was a bit of denialism to confront the people directly. So you kind of like use the Cronier example as a society wanting to corrupt the ANC. But I'm sure now we can agree that actually it's the other way around. So the, that's one moment which I think they by that time they had realized they had a problem, but they kind of like were evasive. But for me, the, the striking one, the first big striking one was the Tony Hengeni case. Because when he appealed his uh, conviction by uh, Magistrate uh, boy, uh, uh, Boyson, if I'm not mistaken, the case was heard by two judges from in the appeal case. And then they wrote a judgment which I, which I think for me should have been used by the ANC as a guideline on how to deal with corruption. They made a comment about the role of the NPA and the interface between the NPA and politicians, why, why the NPA must be independent. And they were commenting about the fact that Bune and Pano Madune had called a press conference. And they made a comment about the Tony Hengen case. And Tony Hengen was leaning on that to say, well, Penelope Maduna and Goulalango have promised me that I won't go to jail. They said I must just pay, fine. That's why I'm admitting to my corruption. right? And the judge says, listen here, that must not happen. The NPA must be independent from political interference. <laughs> Number two, Tony Engen made an argument in court that, listen, anyway, I've resigned as a whip, So I've shown remorse, so I don't need to be punished any further. And the judge said, actually, resigning must not be an honor for a corrupt individual. That's what should happen in the first place. You shouldn't be there. So the ANC could have written that in its rule book that individuals that are corrupt must leave public office early on. So they didn't do that. And they didn't do anything on the NPA. Years later, and appear on television commenting about the Zuma case. No lesson learned. Uh, years later, I mean, two weeks ago, was unveiling new measures to help the party get rid of corruption. In other words, they don't want to elect people that are corrupt. But the judge said that long time ago. So again, if you there's another incident. If you look at what happened to John Block, the chairman of the ANC in the Northern Cape, um, three benches of different courts sat on that matter on, and on different occasions. When they were sentencing him, one of the judges said, listen, we need to fight this corruption not with uh, kid gloves. We need to fight it with hard stuff. And this is a case that must be dealt with. Now, if you go back to the ANC documents, kind of like what the judges are saying is also what's in the ANC declarations, right? But when John Block is sentenced, the ANC says, oh, no, we believe he's, he's, he's innocent uh, until proven guilty. That's when he was charged. When he was sentenced, eventually said, no, we think the appeal will succeed. Until today, the ANC has not issued a statement to say, we agree with the court judgment, and the court judgment is correct. We think branches must read the judgment, and then our comrades must behave accordingly. Until today, the ANC has not done that. Until today, the ANC has not done anything on the Tony Engen case to say, we agree with the judge. But
1: well, it's still on the NEC.
0: Yes. Now,
1: fast forward to
0: Shabir Sheikh case, when he was found guilty. The judge made a very strong comment about that this kind of corruption, if it's not dealt with, it can lead to coups. But I mean, a coup is a very really serious issue, right? Now, we know what happened with the July unrest, right? Um, and people talk about insurrection, which is basically a coup. <laughs> and if you trace it, what happened? The Sendi committee, Africa Professor Sendi, uh, Af- Africa Commission, it says many people they interviewed say, It's because of the problems in the ANC. And if you analyze what is the problem, it's corruption. Right? So that was another missed opportunity to say, well, let's look at this judgment of uh, uh, of Shabir Sheikh and what can the ANC learn from it? Are there anything anything in that uh, judgment that can be uh, put as the rules of the ANC to govern the conduct? They didn't do that. So until today, there is no statement like that that says, we agree with the judgment on the following, we are therefore going to do the following. So the only thing that happened there, at least on the Shabiru, was that Zumo was fired. But again, maybe convenient for Beghi to try to fight in Polokwana to win a third term as ANC president. Not the kind of consistency you need for corruption if you're going to fire somebody and then you want to stand in their position. It doesn't give you that credibility that you're actually fighting corruption. It looks like you are fighting for your own benefits. So you can't fight corruption like that.
1: Are you any more impressed by what is happening at the moment and the commitments that are being made at the moment and the attempt to change the rules uh, so that people who who have been officially charged with serious cases are not allowed to stand for office? Or do you regard this as the same kind of effective window dressing as has been the case in the past? Well, look, I think, again,
0: it's a question of, do you want to talk or do you want to act? So talking, ah, well, the ANC, you, 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 will have, you will be satisfied with the documents. They're enough. too many. They can keep on, they keep on changing the riffraising, and strengthening, and sharpening, and polishing, and doing everything. But I mean, we don't see the action. Zondo published a report. And some of the key people mentioned in the report are still in cabinet today. And this is not Zuma uh, presidents. It's still Ramaphosa presidents. So some of the people are still in cabinet, after all of the horrors at the Zondo Commission. And uh, Zondo makes ruling about um, cadet deployment. The ANC is challenging that in court. They want to continue cadet deployment. And they even say now that actually there's they have a right to do it even in the private sector, something like that. Um, so, and then you have Zandile Kumete in, in Guazulu-Natal, the eight, former Ete Mayor is undergoing a trial. She remains the chairperson of that region, which is the biggest region in the country, of the ANC. So she's facing something like more than 500 to 1,000 uh, counts of corruption and fraud elected by the majority of the people in that uh, region. Uh, another person in Bumalanga is facing major charges, is being elected as treasurer of the party.
1: So you can go on and on and on. But again, as I say, the VBS people remaining in office. You know, they remain in I, office. When they just leave, they get back into office. And one one so of
0: them on. the is busy campaigning that the step aside rule must be scrapped. And then um, so. The thing is, all of this—the <coughs> louder the call, which is the louder the call against corruption—runs uh, parallel with the entrenchment of corruption. And I think, for the first time in the history of this country, I, 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 yesterday we have the biggest, um, should I say, the highest value, if monetary value of corruption, put corruption cases put together. I think, uh, Godfrey Libya, put it at more than one trillion rands worth of corruption cases being investigated by uh, by the hawks. It's unprecedented. So as the anti-corruption rhetoric reaches a uh, high pitch, the more people become corrupt, the more corruption happens, the more money gets stolen. All of these things are running parallel at the same time. So we go on. I don't know how far along we'll go, but we go on. And more people get killed, by the way. It's politicians who get killed mostly uh, uh, people who, uh, who who stand against corruption, or if you refuse to authorize a tender in a municipality, there's a chance that people are going to visit you at night and kill you. Uh, <laughs> there's a municipality called Collins Chaba, municipality in Limpopo. The mayor was killed just last month. In KZN, the the point reached uh, it reached a point where the former premier of Western Natal established the commission chaired by Advocate Muerane to look at political killings, and he concluded that. All the killings had to do with corruption, uh, nepotism and procurement and all of that. So, more people are dying, more commitments to fight corruption, more people uh, stay in positions who
1: are corrupt, and we go on. It's quite a depressing analysis. Um, well, it's not quite a depressing analysis, it's an extremely depressing analysis. So, there's, there's no sense for you of any any reasonable possibility of the ANC doing what it constantly promises to do, which is renew itself?
0: Look, at the moment, I think we're faced with uh, two, three possible scenarios. One is that uh, it was once propagated by Halema Motlante that the ANC needs to lose power, and then it can get rid of all the, all the people that have joined the ANC for wrong reasons. And then it can clean itself, and maybe it can come back in power as a clean party. The other option is that the A's can clean itself even if it's in government. And that's what it's committed itself to do.
1: So those are the two scenarios.
0: The third scenario, which might be more realistic, but it's very painful to think about is, is that we have now entered a new phase in our politics, which is uh, the post-1994 new struggle. It's got its own heroes, struggle heroes,
1: New and, and there's a chapter about the, 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 the heroes, the whistleblowers. Yeah.
0: New struggle heroes have been born now, not the ones that fought apartheid, but the ones that are fighting to preserve democracy and, and, and the constitutional structure we have. So they are prepared to die, just like the previous uh, generation of Patricia Tilly and others were prepared to die, to be sent to prison, to go to exile, um, to be detained without trial, taken away from their families, Put on Robin Island for 27 years, so that was the spirit of the of that time. So that struggle is back now in a different uh, guise, which is that people are now struggling to preserve the democratic system that we have from collapse, and
1: they are prepared to die for it. And that's mm-hmm. where we are. Which Babita Deolkaran did. And yesterday was the first anniversary of it, and I just. Adrian Besson is sitting there of News24, sometimes a small thing allows you to understand the immense scope of this problem more than trying to wrestle with the immense scope of the problem and I just cannot stop thinking about this Tembisa hospital manager who is still in his job, who bought for a hospital 200 pairs of skinny jeans for girls aged 6 and 7 at a cost of 2,500 rand each. Excuse me? It's, It's just so obviously, incontrovertibly, unarguably, obscenely wrong. And somebody who tried to point this out is killed.
0: Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's what happens. The, the, the interesting thing about that story is, why is it that the Tembisa guy calls ANC people to help him? Why can't he call Azapo or, or COPE or DA or whatever? He calls ANC people to say, help me with Mr. 24 I'm in trouble. Why? Why can't he call Kozat? Why can't he call other people? Because
1: he thinks he's going he, to get he, help he, from he the, the ANC. Help?
0: Well, I'm just leaving it out there because this person is specifically calling ANC people. He says, help me. Why must ANC people help me? Why can't he call DA and say, help me? I'm in trouble here in Tembisa." News24 is dealing with me. Why can't he call Mm -hmm. uh, good?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And there's also a chapter, Pandemic Meets Pandemic, and and it obviously looks at the... um, the incredible increase in the corruption and the tenders during the the COVID pandemic. And, I mean, you know, we think of state capture in terms of the big ones. We think of ESCOM and Transnet and those huge sums of money. But there's also a very, very instructive table in, in this chapter, pandemic versus pandemic, which looks at poor financial controls in municipalities. And if you look at the combination of irregular expenditure, fruitless and wasteful expenditure, and unauthorised expenditure across municipalities from the Auditor General's report, in the year 2008-2009, that is a total of 4.8 billion rand. If you do the same for 29.20, it is a total of 52 billion rand. That is the scale of how the looting and wasteful expenditure has increased in this country. And, and please, please find a way. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us there is a way we can stop it.
0: Yeah, and by the way, this number is a conservative because what has happened is that over the years, uh, officials have found a way to game the system. So irregular expenditure looks like it has fallen in the last few years. But fruitless expenditure is up. And, um, um, unauthorized <coughs> expenditure is up. So what has happened is exactly what we find now with Visa Hospital. So the below 500,000 uh, uh, quotations would not be counted as irregular expenditure and would not be counted as fruitless unless a forensic investigation happens. And the author general doesn't always do forensic investigation. They usually look at the book, so in this case, at phase zero if there was no accountant like barbita jokoran who drew the attention to the problem chances are that the auto general would have looked at the books and would have found all the expenditure okay it's not fruitless because the jeans were delivered uh, two um it's not irregular because the expenditure was within the delegated authority of the hospital ceo right um three is not um unauthorized expenditure because the expenditures is approved by the provincial legislature of Hauden and the health department. So chances are that at face value, an auditor coming to look at those books, who is not paying attention, would have found no problem with Tembeza Hospital. So <laughs> that's one of the problems about corruption in this country, that it's so, dra- it's so draining on the state. It's basically, the state is overwhelmed. It has no way of investigating every allegation of corruption. So as we said earlier, as the proclamations are made about, you know, uh, anti-corruption measures and all of that, the scale and the monetary value is, is growing to the point where now we are dealing with more than one trillion rent, which is unprecedented. Um, so uh, something has to be done around capacitating the state to deal with this overwhelming problem. And I think part of the problem is in the ANC. If you if you don't solve the political problem, then the entire state um, is, is, is Consumed under the weight of this corruption, which is mainly the source of it, is, is really political. The incentive to be corrupt um, is much higher than the penalties.
1: Can't one argue that, although they are not, they're not cause for popping open a champagne bottle and donning Lurex tights and dancing on the table? Some of the appointments that Sil Ramaphosa has made to the NPA, to the SIU to the Concord and so on are, if not grounds for boundless optimism, at least tiny little seeds which have been planted in potentially fertile soil.
0: I agree. I think if you look at the appointments at the NPA, first of all, the the manner of appointment is commendable, which is you set up a panel to interview the head of the NPA, something which has not happened before. And then you set up a panel to interview the head of SARS, which has not happened before. Um, but for some reason, there's no panel to interview the new head of SARS. Don't know why. Um, but still, even with that ray of hope, the legislation as it currently stands governing the NPA, uh, SARS, and the and the SARS, the police, is that. It's the discretion of the president to make the appointments. Mm-hmm. And the process of appointing is also largely left to the president to decide. So basically, as the once said, that the way the system has been created, the constitution, the way it's drafted and the way the laws of appointment are made, put too much hope that the president will always be an ethical president with uh, public interest at heart but in reality we have learned that we have given the responsibility too much to one individual to do things at his own discretion and it doesn't work um so Cyril ramaphosa did well in the way he appointed the head of the npa in the way he appointed the head of sars but he did it at his own discretion there's no law if you become president tomorrow, you can do it the, your own way. You can go pick up your own person. So the, 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 the process is not regulated. So it, it's, it's still vulnerable. Tomorrow, someone can come and become president and Shamila Patul will be gone. Uh, because the system allows for that manipulation to happen. Um, I mean, we had a situation where Bulele Moga didn't finish his term. He had to resign under very difficult circumstances after he had been accused of uh, having been a spy, something like that. And then you had Mokote-Dim um, who was acting and he resigned under very mysterious uh, problematic circumstances. And we know that um, he had uh, done Begge's bidding before um, he did Zuma's bidding. So in the case of for example, Begge didn't like the idea that the scorpions could raid and arrest Salebe. And the scorpions had obtained search and arrest warrants. Bege didn't want that. So that's why Pigole had to go. So the moment Mokodidim uh, took over, what did he do? He tried to reverse both. So he basically tried to do what Mbegi wished. So the court agreed on one, but the other one, the court didn't agree. But even on the one where he still could have executed it, he decided not to act on it. So that was the early stage of political interference in the working of the NPA. By the time Zuma came, uh, he already knew what he could do, potentially. And it was so easy for him, because they had opened the way. So Zuma simply ravaged the entire thing uh, beyond recognition, really.